It is clearly a sign and a convincing evidence as to just how far our culture has fallen. When ads are put on billboards and placed in magazines and newspapers, with a toll-free number or a website that people can go to, with a caption that reads, Who's the Father? Those ads are sponsored by companies that are making a boatload of money using DNA testing to establish the identity of a child's father and, in some cases, the mother. This past week, as I was preparing this message, I decided to Google paternity tests. And I discovered that even right here in Salt Lake, there are a host of companies that offer this services. There are two types of testing that you can get, DNA paternity testing. First, there is the private testing that is more for the benefit of the curious. And then there's the legal that is used to determine child support and custody. And what you do is you select the type of paternity test that you want. Send in a sample of your DNA and that of other people that you are having tested. And within three to five business days, the results are yours, sent discreetly in an envelope, results being kept confidential. And it's all inclusive, the price. I thought it interesting, the price breakdown. One child, one alleged father, $99. One mother, one child, one alleged father, $125. Two children, one alleged father, 164. One mother, two children, one alleged father, 210. Three children, one alleged father, 249. One mother, three children, one alleged father, 259. And you get the idea. And if listed there before you is not exactly what you are looking for, if one of those categories doesn't fit your need, there's a toll-free number that you can call to get the cost. Now, as I said, the very fact that these companies exist is a sign of our postmodern times and how bad things have gotten. And the reality that our morals as a culture are spinning out of control. I mean, think about it for a moment. These companies exist because some women are clueless as to the father of their children. And in some cases, men are equally in the dark. And because some people are unsure who they are or where they came from, they want to secure these tests. This past week, Connie and I were in St. Louis visiting our daughter and her six children, two of whom are adopted from Haiti. And she mentioned that one of the questions that both Rovinsky and Evelyn are starting to ask is, Who's my mommy? Who is my daddy? And in the case of Rolvensky, the boy, we have no idea. He was absolutely abandoned on the streets of Haiti. They do have an idea of who Evelyn's mother might be, but again, they're absolutely clueless as to the father. You know, we all want to know our identity, do we not? Human beings are created with a desire to know their true identity. And I want to just remind you that while our earthly identity may be uncertain, our spiritual identity 
need not be. Because I want you to notice what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 26. Your Bible should be open. Galatians 3, 26, it says this. It says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Friend, the Christian's spiritual paternity is not in question. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, you know who's your daddy. You know to whom you belong. Now just to remind you of the context of where we are in the letter, Paul is writing to first century Christians to reinforce the principle that we are saved by believing and not by achieving. No person can earn his or her salvation through good works. God will not be bought. God loves us just as we are. We are creatures that have been made in his image and redeemed by his son. Not because of what we've done or haven't done, but God gives to us eternal life on the basis of grace through faith. And he gives us eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of heaven, not because of our accomplishments, but purely because of his grace. And the Christians there in the region of Galatia had been infiltrated after Paul left on his first missionary journey, having established those churches. They had been infiltrated by false teachers who were teaching otherwise. And Paul writes this letter, this impassioned letter, to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ. And when you come to the end of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, Paul's argument against the legalist in Galatia is reaching a climax. Last week we saw that Paul explained the purpose of the law. And among the many purposes of the law, he says that it was added as a tutor. It was a guardian. It was a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. The law was something that God gave to underage children. But eventually those children grow up and they no longer need a guardian. And so the law, Paul says, lasts only till the coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to point out in the verses I want us to look at this morning the tremendous difference between being a child of God versus being a slave. Now, some of the differences are obvious. Sons and daughters have the same nature or the same DNA as their father and the slave does not. Sons and daughters are heirs to the father's estate while the slave is destitute of any inheritance. Sons and daughters are to obey out of love while slaves obey out of fear. Sons and daughters have a bright hope and future while the slave has no future whatsoever. And Paul's point in the verses I want us to look at this morning is that you and I have been redeemed. We've been delivered. We have been set free from the slavery of law and sin. And because of faith, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And his argument is going to be this. Why then in the world 
Would you ever abandon that glorious position that is yours as a son or daughter of God, a a child of God by faith? Why would you ever abandon that privileged position and return to legalism? You've been given a full share of God's infinite and eternal inheritance. Why are you even entertaining the idea of going back? And yet, that is exactly what was happening in Galatia. And sadly, it's also happening in churches today. And so starting in verse 26 of chapter 3 and continuing down through verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul is saying, and this is the big idea of the morning, okay? This is the big takeaway. This is the takeaway that we're going to give you early in case of any of you decide to go to sleep. Here's the takeaway. God's grace turns us from slave children into adult children of God. We're part of God's family. And as such, we ought to live and act like what we are. And I think the first point that he makes in verses 26 through verse 29 is simply this. All true believers in Christ are children of God. Again, look at verse 26. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For that's the basic identity of the believer. You're a child of the king. We sang that in the chorus at the beginning of this message. I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. With Jesus my savior, I'm a child of the king. And Paul says, you are all children of God. Now, when Paul uses that term all, he doesn't mean absolutely all. Paul is not here teaching universalism. Because I want you to observe very carefully in this verse that he limits the all by the last phrase of verse 26 to those who have believed, to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is not in this verse supporting the popular notion of today regarding the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Friend, that understanding of humanity is really only in a very limited way given. God created us all. We all share the image of God. Human beings as such have worth and dignity. But spiritually speaking... We become children of God. We come into the family of God, the brotherhood and sisterhood of the redeemed, only by grace through faith. Now, admittedly, Paul doesn't mention grace in this verse. He only mentions faith. But as you couple this concept with other passages of Scripture, grace is the basis of our salvation, and faith is the channel that implements it. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, if you really think it through, it's not our faith that saves us, but it's God's grace that saves us. But the two work in harmony, one with the other, and both are needed. Grace is the basis and faith is the channel And then what happens once we come to faith in Jesus Christ? 
Well, I think in verse 27, Paul says that we proclaim our new status through baptism. He says in verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, people read that verse, and if they're knowledgeable in Scripture, they often ask the question, well, is this spirit baptism or is this water baptism? And I'm going to give a very safe and diplomatic answer. How about both, okay? That way I won't offend anybody. Hopefully you know that spirit baptism of the believer is what we get when we trust Jesus Christ. It is the means whereby we are placed into the body of Christ. We are so identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection We are clothed with his righteousness that we're put into the family of God. In fact, if you're taking notes, just jot down and listen as I read from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, just as the body through one, though one, has many many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And then he says in verse 13, and here's the key, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we have all given, we were, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. He's talking there about the spirit baptism that is the believers. The baptism of or in the Holy Spirit that joins the believer to Christ and unites him with the church universal. And it happens the moment a person is saved. The moment they believed. And then I would like to suggest this morning that that should be followed by water baptism. Believer's baptism. That baptism whereby a believer declares publicly his faith in Jesus Christ. His identity with Christ. And he's placed down into the waters of baptism and he's brought up identifying himself with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's raised up out of the water. He or she is saying, I'm taking on a new identity. I've trusted Christ. I'm I'm a new person. I find it interesting that there's no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the New Testament. You say, wait a minute, Doug, I got you. I got you. Not so fast there, buckaroo. What about the thief on the cross? Well, if you think it through, he was really an Old Testament believer because he was saved before the death of Christ. See, baptism is the means of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. And when a person is raised up out of the water, they are symbolically saying that I'm united with Christ. And I've been clothed with Christ. And as such, I lay aside those old garments of the law and I put on robes of righteousness. Robes of righteousness that grant me full acceptance before God. And his point is this, why then would you ever want to don old clothes? Why would you want to dress in that that old attire when you've been given a, a new attire to wear? 
And so when you come to faith in Christ, what are you to do? Well, you remove the old garments of your old life. Those old garments might manifest themselves through habits and addictions and attitudes. And they're replaced by new attitudes and an attitude of love and service towards God. And we proclaim our new status as sons and daughters of God through baptism. And we exhibit it through a changed life. And then notice what he says in verse 28. He says, there is, because of this work of God in your life and mine, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. We sang about it several times this morning, and we'll end our service with this, but we enjoy a unity as followers of Christ of equality and unity and oneness. We're one with Christ as well as God's chosen people, the Jews. And you know, as I was reflecting on this, I, I realized that it's, it's not even possible for us in modern day America, when we've been brought up and we live under the umbrella of the Constitution, believing that all men have been created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, I don't think it's possible for us to fully appreciate the absolutely stunning impact of Paul's words in verse 28. Think back to what life must have been like 2,000 years ago. There were no democratic governments that championed the ideals of equality and fairness. There were no philosophers or sociologists who taught that all people should be treated, treated with dignity and respect. Friend, what Paul says here is, is radical. It was revolutionary. The equality of, of believers was absent from ancient society as well as, I might add, even the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, you find that the laws of Moses created this great distinction between the clergy and the laity. A great distinction between men and women, between Jews and other ethnic groups. This distinction manifested itself in the diet and, the, and in the dress of people. Furthermore, the great temple in Jerusalem had a court of the women beyond which the women could not go. It had a court for the Gentiles beyond which they could not go. A pious Jew and Pharisee in the first century would, would get up every morning and say this prayer. He'd say, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew, not a Gentile. A man, not a woman. A free man and not a slave. Friend, there was a marked distinction among people. And yet Paul says here in Galatians 3 that these age-old distinctions are irrelevant in Christ. In Christ, these human distinctions of ethnicity lose their significance. No one is superior. No one is better. In Jesus Christ, there is equality of person and there is equality of value. Now, I, I have to add, for the sake of some who want 
might want to run wild with this. I don't think that this means that race, gender, and social status are to be obliterated or that they should be entirely ignored. When a person gets saved, you don't lose your identity. In the eyes of God, you're all equal. Paul is not trying to bring about political emancipation of the slaves, nor is he espousing the modern feminist notion that women should exercise the same role as men. Paul's point here is simply this, that these outward distinctions among men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, he's not saying that they don't exist, he's saying that they don't matter in the eyes of God. And they ought not matter in the eyes of you and me. When it comes to our spiritual relationship to God through Christ, no one is at a handicap. In other words, a female Gentile slave who grew up in paganism enjoys the same status in the church as a male free man who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. We are spiritual equals within the body of Christ. And we enjoy that unity even with the chosen people of God, the Jew. See, verse 29, he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promises that were spoken to Abraham and were ultimately fulfilled in Christ are those promises that you and I get a share in as well. And that's an important thing for us to remember. We belong to Christ. And we are heirs of the spiritual blessings that God promised to Abraham. Spiritually speaking, the Gentile believer is, well, he's a, he's a full-blooded Jew, spiritually speaking. We are part of God's chosen family. We're part of the royal priesthood. And I might also add, the converse is also true, and that is that the Jewish believer today has no spiritual advantage over the rest of us. Now, friend, the application of this should be obvious. And that is that ethnic, ethnic, economic, and gender distinctions in the church, as far as we look at one another and we value one another, are to be eliminated. The color of a person's skin, the language that they speak, how much money they earn, how you earn it, where you went to school, or even if you went to school, those things ought not matter. You know what we do? We, we, we come together as one. There's a oneness in Jesus Christ. And one of the concerns that I have is that the reason the race card gets played so often today is because we continue to keep it in the deck. And what we need to do is we need to, sort of like when you play cards and you pull out the jokers and you set them aside and you say, we're not going to play with this card anymore. And that's what we need to do with some of these distinctions. We'll notice that beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, down through verse 7. I think Paul reminds us that before we became adult sons and daughters of God, we were children and slaves. 
And what he does here is he says, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time has fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also his heir. You know, sometimes the problem in life is that we don't appreciate what we are and have until we look back at what we were and what we had. And what Paul is saying in these verses is that children were no different than a slave. They were subject to guardians and trustees, and they were enslaved by the basic principles of the world. And that was your position before Christ. But like a rich kid who owns an entire estate by means of a trust set up by his father, maybe worth millions, as long as that child is a minor, the power and the influence that was his and will be his, is of no advantage to him. It doesn't mean a thing against the kid who doesn't have a dime to his age. He says, and you have no appreciation for the benefits of your status. You, you can't make decisions. These people back then who were under a guardian, who were under, a, 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 under the supervision of someone, they had no control over their life whatsoever. They were told what to do and when to do it in the same way as a slave child. He says that you were subject to guardians and trustees until the set time, but now the application of this is applied to us when he says in verse 3, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And you know what happened? When God sent his son, we were set free. We've been delivered from the law. In the age of spiritual childhood, in the Old Testament period, when the law of Moses was in effect, before Christ came, God dealt with people totally differently than he's dealing with them today. It was just like the life of a slave. From the the moment an Old Testament saint would wake up in the morning until he retired at night, the law controlled his life. It told him what to do and when to do it and what to dress and what to eat. What Paul is saying here is that the Jews were like rich kids who were still minors waiting for their inheritance. But, and I love this, at exactly the right time, when the time was right, God sent his son to redeem us and adopt us as adult sons and daughters. He says that in verse 7. 
You know, as you look back on history, it's no accident that Christ was born when he was born and where he was born. The conditions for Christ's coming in the first century were absolutely perfect. There was the universal trade language of Greek. There was the Roman peace that enabled extensive travel on excellent Roman roads. There was a vast network of Jewish synagogues that provided the perfect vehicle for the eventual spread of Christianity. I think as well the spiritual conditions of God's people Israel, they were ripe and they were ready for Messiah to come. And all of these things just perfectly fell into place when Jesus Christ came. Paul says in these verses that God sent his son both to redeem and to adopt He says that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And you know, each of those phrases is incredibly uh, pregnant with meaning. He says God sent his son, indicating the deity of Christ. Second, he was born of a woman, indicating the humanity of Christ. Thirdly, he was born under the law. He was familiar with the law, and he kept it absolutely perfectly. And when you put all of those three things together... It explains the plan of redemption. Friend, if Christ had not been human, he could not have redeemed humans. If he had not been a lawkeeper, he could not have redeemed lawbreakers. If he hadn't been God's son, he could not have made us children of God. And the picture here is of a wealthy man going to a slave auction and purchasing a slave and then setting that slave free. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. He went and he paid the penalty for our sin, releasing us from the necessity of having to pay for it with our own life. But Paul says he didn't only send him to redeem us, he also sent to adopt us into the family of God. See, verse 5, he says, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Friend, when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the full rights of a son. You know, it's one thing for a slave to be set free. It's something else entirely to be adopted by the plantation owner and made an heir of this state. You know, there's a lot of incredible stories that come out of the Civil War, especially following the emancipation of the slaves A lot of plantation owners, particularly those who were Christians, became convicted of the evils of slavery and they set their own slaves free. And if you read the history, then they bought them back, brought them back rather as workers. But friend, you will look in vain, and there may be one out there, but I couldn't find it. You will look in vain for a slave owner who adopted one of his slaves as his own son and made him heir of the plantation. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here that God did for us when he set us free from the slavery of the law and sin. He took that unprecedented step of adopting us into the family of God and he gives us then all of the rights and all of the privileges of sons and daughters of God. He wrote us into the will. (laughs) He made us heirs. 
But he not only sent his son to redeem us and adopt us, he also sent his spirit, and I love this, to confirm our new status. And he's talking here about that quiet, inward witness of the Spirit of God, whereby we cry out to him, Abba, Father. You know, as I was reflecting on this, I realized that there are a lot of Christians, and maybe you're among them this morning, who go through periods of doubt and confusion about their spiritual security. And what they're looking for is something miraculous, some sign, some supernatural experience that someone else may have had. But I find it most telling that the Apostle Paul says that the way that God assures us of our sonship is not primarily by signs or wonders or supernatural gifts, but by the quiet inward witness of the Spirit. Isn't that great? He says, because you are his son, now this is how we know we are his son, God sent into our heart, hearts, the Spirit who cries out or calls out, Abba, Father. In other words, the Spirit enables us to address God as a father rather than a judge. Again, you will search in vain in the Old Testament to find God addressed as Father. But with the coming of the Spirit of God, believers now have that privilege. What's more, as you go back into history, no slave ever called his master Papa. They never called him Daddy. No matter how much love or trust there may have been between a slave owner and the slave, that was a privilege that was reserved for the sons and daughters. And the Holy Spirit here teaches us that God's children use the language of a son instead of the language of a slave. And what's the end result? Well, it's in verse 7. He says, so you then, because of all these things that God's done for us, He says, you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. You're an heir of his riches. Think about the implications of that. You and I are going to inherit the vast resources of God. And what's most unfortunate is that some people spend the majority of their time tried to build up these earthly resources instead of reflecting on the spiritual resources and riches that are theirs. And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have nice things. I'm not saying that you shouldn't work so that you have an adequate amount of money to live on and to be cared for as you get older. The problem, however, is you can't take it with you And you won't need it once you get there. And oftentimes all it does is corrupt those we leave it to. I love the bumper sticker and I plan on doing it to the best of my ability that says we're spending our children's inheritance. I want to check out of here with my bank account at zero. 
And what Paul is saying here is that you and I, because we belong to God, have all of his riches. Well, notice how Paul ends this section in verses 8 through 11. He says, since you're no longer a slave, but now an adult son or daughter, and full heirs, why in the world would you ever think of going back to that old way of life? See, verse 8, he says, formerly, when you were living that way, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, now that you've become a Christian, or rather are known by God, I love how he corrects himself there. Good, good theologian he was. He says, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons of the year. And I think Paul says with, with a heartbreak in his heart and a quiver in his voice, he says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. He says, in the past you had an excuse for your legalistic behavior. You didn't know God. You didn't know any better. You acted like a slave because you were a slave, but now things are different. Things have changed. You know, I have read that some of the slaves that were emancipated by Lincoln during the Civil War, after trying freedom for a while, went back to their old masters and begged to become slaves again. Now, it wasn't that slavery was so great, but at least there was security in it. The slave didn't have to think for himself. He didn't have to plan. He didn't have to worry about where the next meal was coming from. All the slave had to do was obey the rules and he'd survive. And you know what's sad is that there are some people who are just like that freed slave. They become a Christian and they realize that in Christ they have liberty, they have freedom. And what do they do? They want to go back to that old way of life where they think, you know, I've got to do this and I've got to do that to please God. And while there's something terribly sad about a freed slave who begs to go back into his slavery, there's something even sadder when a believer who has come to know God and experienced God's marvelous grace and who's been introduced to the amazing freedoms that we have in Christ and they desire to go back to that old way of life with all of its miserable rules and regulations. And that's why I think Paul, again, with a broken heart, says, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? He says, I feel like I'm just wasting my time with you. I feel like I'm an abysmal failure that you're willing to do this. You're letting the religious calendar control your life. You're a Christian, but you've gone back to the rituals and the rules, and your faith has degenerated into a external formalism you've dropped out of the school of grace and you're enrolling again into the kindergarten of the law and he says how utterly foolish what a mistake 
And what's heartbreaking to me is that there's many Christians who are doing exactly the same thing. They've never come to understand the joy and the freedom and the liberties that they have as a follower of Christ. I'm not talking about the liberties to do wrong. I'm talking about the liberties to enjoy life. And to not be bound by the dictates of other people who are telling you what to do and when to do it and where to do it. And when you go to church, you feel like you have a hundred bosses because everybody's telling you what to do. That was the problem here in Galatia. John Newton is a name familiar to many of you. When he was seven years old, he lost his mother. And at the age of 11, he became involved in unspeakable atrocities as a sailor. He plumbed the depths of sin and human degradation. And on the 10th of March, 1748, when his ship was in imminent peril of, of, of sinking because of a terrible storm, John Noon cried out to God for his mercy. And he found God, or rather God found him. And he was converted. And he vowed that he would never forget how God in his grace saved him. And John Newton, who wrote that marvelous hymn that so many of us know by heart, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, knew that he needed to do something that would imprint uh, that in his mind forever. And so what John Newton did is he wrote in bold letters and fastened it across the wall over the mantel piece of his study the words from Deuteronomy 15, 15 that say, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that's our takeaway. Now, we weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were, before we came to Christ, enslaved to sin. And the bondage that it gives us and that is something that we should never, ever forget. We've been liberated. We've been set free. And you know what God is saying to us through this letter that Paul wrote to these first century Christians in Galatia? He's saying, now that you've been liberated, now that you've been set free, go out and live like it. Not a freedom to sin, but a freedom to enjoy life, to live for God and his glory. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for this marvelous, marvelous letter that has been preserved for us. I pray that we would never take the freedom that is ours for granted, especially given the fact that we live in a culture, in a world where so many are using their liberties and the freedoms that are theirs as a license to do wrong. Help us not to have that naive thinking. Pray that in the coming weeks as we address that very issue, that you would help us to apply it to our lives. Thank you that we have been delivered from the bondage of slavery to sin.
And we've been liberated by Jesus Christ and adopted into his family. Seal these truths, we pray, to our hearts, for we've asked it together in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.